you got a Bible, go to Ephesians. Ephesians is where we are at. If you're brand new with us here at MCC, we've been journeying through the book of Ephesians. We've been leaning into this idea that God reveals to us his identity and therefore shows us our identity and figuring out who we are is a huge part of figuring out what our purpose is. But first and before that, we got to figure out who God is and what he's done for us. And so we've been journeying through that as we've been going through the book of Ephesians. I'm happy to announce that we're going to stay on our pace and we're going to get into at least two verses today. Okay. Um, we are going to be in Ephesians 1 today. Uh, we're going to go uh, through verses 1, uh, or verses 3 through 6, and we're going to particularly dive in primarily to verse 5, but also 5 and 6. So uh, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it up there. Everybody there? If you're not, say, hold up. I just heard a cough, not a hold up, so we're good. Um, this is what it says. Just kidding. Uh-oh. I knew something bad was going to happen eventually. Just kidding. Good stuff's happening. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So Paul, again, right off the bat, starts out with praise, adoration. Blessed be this God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. So he's a good father. He blesses us with every spiritual blessing. Again, the us here is those who are in Christ in Ephesus. And same to us. He's writing and explaining, if you are in Christ in McDonough, this applies to you as well. So let's go to verse four. It says, okay, he's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Even, and this is what we leaned into heavily last week, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Which again, I just want to pause for a second and just camp out on that and go, that's awesome. Before the foundation of the world, he chose us in Christ. So if you go like, okay, what was in the mind of God from the very beginning? What was he thinking about? What was he pondering? It wasn't mountains. It wasn't Mount Everest. It wasn't, how do I make dark and light and light and dark and clouds and photosynthesis and the evaporation cycle and all of these things. When God was beginning before all of that to dream up the things that would be in his mind, the two things that were going on in his mind were you and Jesus. You, right now, you. Mistakes you made, you. Imperfections, you. Good things you've done, you. Like you and your relationship to his son, Jesus Christ, was what was on the heart and mind of God before the foundation of the world. It's just gotta kind of make you feel like, one, small, but also like good. Like, wow, like he was thinking about me. It's good to know people are thinking about you, right? Like when you guys come up to me like, hey, my Bible study, we were praying for you Tuesday. I'm like, cool, it's good. Like I felt that, I needed that but how much more so to go from the very beginning of time before there was Mount Everest, before there was oceans, river, or the evaporation cycle, the God of the universe had you on his mind and your relationship to his son. Again, not for your good, but it would be for your good, but for his glory. That's amazing thing about that. Before the beginning of time, he's like, he said, I want you. Before you knew what you would do or what you wouldn't do. I want you, you're mine. So he shows us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Last week, we leaned into a lot, these, this, these kind of two paths that you can go to with a verse like this, where he says, he's chose us from the beginning of time when we talked about Calvinism and Arminianism and this idea of, okay, do we choose God or does he choose us? And is God just out there going, hey, I want that one, that one, that one, and that one, and not that one, not that one, not that one. Or is God going, I choose all of you. I want everyone to come into my kingdom. I want everyone to be a part of this new family, this new thing I'm creating in Christ. But I'm not gonna force you into this. Faith is gonna get you into this. 
we talked about last week that, that we would kind of lean to that second part of, of we are uh, at a church that kind of leans away from the Calvinistic belief of that. We believe in the Arminian side that, that is by faith that we are welcomed in. And faith is not a work. Faith is something that God bursts in us. And as we put our faith in Christ, he says, okay, amazing. I've already chosen and predetermined what would come of those who are in Christ. So here's what new life looks like. And that's what we're gonna get into as we lean into verse five. It says, okay, we are in Christ it says, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Now we're gonna spend most of our day camping out on this. But before we do, I wanna actually go back to verse four. Can we go back to verse four? Because there's something we gotta cover in verse four. It's these two words. They're really important words, all right? In love. All right, you got your Bible. If you're looking at your Bible, go down to between verse four and five. It almost seems confusing, right? Because usually... When, you put, when, they, when they put one of those numbers there, it's like right before a new sentence starts. But here we get this five, right? What seems like in the middle of a sentence. Is anybody else kind of like, what's going on here? This doesn't make any sense. First of all, let me tell you one thing. Um, all these numbers that are in the Bible, the Holy Spirit wasn't inspiring Paul and going, here's what I need you to write. Tell them about, you know, they're chosen, blameless in love, and then put a four right there and then a one right there. And here's how you divide all this out. Here's how you put it in chapters. That was done after the fact as the Bible was compiled so that we could have easier places to go to reference. Okay, so that's not Holy Spirit inspired, which means that we have a little bit of freedom there to go, okay, what does it mean? And we're not becoming heretics when we disagree on what those things mean. So it's almost like the scholars kind of were like, hey, we think this way and we think this way. There was kind of two different camps and there's still two different camps on this word in love. Some, this is how I'd say it was camp one, would say this, these two things in love, they would say that goes with verse four. They would say he's chosen us from the beginning of time uh, that we should be homely, holy and blameless before him in love, which that makes good sense, right? Like I'm holy and I'm blameless before him and I'm in love with him. And why would I not be? He took all my filth, all my rags, all of that. And he says, I'm still wanting you to be right up before me in my son. So yeah, for sure we're gonna be in love. Now there's a whole camp of scholars and everybody else who says that is that. And I think that's a great point. And I, I feel like we kind of illustrated that point last week as you saw me um, pull on your heartstrings as I gave my, my son a big in love embrace. But I'm gonna argue this week that, go to verse five, the in love connects to in love he predestined us. It is in love that he goes, okay, because I love you. Not because of your goodness, not because of your, you know, the, the fact that I find some inerrant good in you or there's still a few of you that are okay. He's going in love, in my love for you, I'm predestining you. Which is not like saying, when you say to a kid, hey, eat your broccoli. And they're like, I'm gonna eat my broccoli. They eat it. Because I think sometimes how we think about God, God it, we almost think about God as like, okay, well, I'm God and I do good things. So I gotta get them. I gotta, I gotta adopt them. I gotta, I gotta, this again? Like, that's not our God. It's in love. And see, that in love he predestined us, I believe is the, one of the very foundational things that got Satan kicked out of heaven because I don't think Satan can grasp and understand why in the world God would be in love with me and you. Like Satan knows everything about us, same way God knows everything about us. And I think Satan and maybe even some of the angels, this is why he got a third of them to rebel out of heaven. I think they kind of all look at us and go, why does he love them? They're so weird. Like, gosh, they're, t like they're weird. They're, they're back, they're just rebellious. They can't fly. Like they can't, they're, they're, why? Why do we love them? Why do you love them? I think the point that Paul is making here is, is, is it's God's love 
that doesn't make sense. It's God's love that is not bound in and how good you are, what you've done. It's his love that predestines us for adoption. Now, let's camp out on that word predestined because that's where some of us, like if you grew up in maybe a somewhat fundamental home, you, you hear that word predestined, you immediately think, oh, that's one of those words. Like that means we're Calvinists because they're the ones who believe in predestination. All right. Now, to my Calvinistic, potentially brothers and sisters in the room or people who have come out of that background, I'm gonna try to not steal back, but I think sometimes that, that word gets kind of taken to only mean it's Calvinistic views. And what I mean by that is we think predestined and that's just, there's a God out there who's going, I'm predestining you to go to heaven, you to go to heaven, you to go to heaven. You're gonna be kindling uh, in hell. <laughs> you to go to heaven, you to go to heaven, you to go to heaven. It's like duck, duck, damned. Um, that's not our God though. That's not him. We have a different God. So you remember in verse four, and if you got your Bible open, go back and look at it. Verse four, he said, before the foundation of the world, it says you are chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Now, when it says you're, you are chosen or we are chosen, what he's talking about there is in chosen, he's talking about a people. So when you see chosen, think this is the people who he has chosen in Christ. Now go down to verse five. He's not talking about people anymore. When he says you have been predestined, what he's talking about is not the people, but the place and the purpose of the people. He's saying, I've chosen these people and I've predestined their purpose. All right, so I'm gonna show you what the word predestined means. I think we can show that up there. Predestined, this is, take a note, you can write this down. Predestined means to decide upon beforehand, to predetermine. And see, that's what, when you hear that word predestined, I don't want you to think that's just God going this one, that one, that one, that one, this one, not that one. When you hear the word predestined, it's, remember, it's predestined in Christ. So this is God going, I choose all of them. And for those who through faith are in Christ, I am predetermining what will come of them. I'm predetermining what will be their new life. All right, to, to make it, uh, and from an illustration side of point, or maybe a metaphor that hopefully makes it a little bit easier to grasp, say you have two different baseball coaches and we'll say one coach is Coach Arminian and one coach is Coach Calvin, okay? Coach Calvin He's over here and he says, I am predestining that anybody who's a part of my team, we will be very fundamentally sound and we'll have excellent conditioning. We'll all be very, very fast. We're gonna have great fundamentals. Now, that's his, what he's predestining that his team will be. Coach Arminian, he's over here and he says, I also am predestining. I am predestining that everybody on my team will have excellent conditioning and we'll be amazing at the fundamentals of baseball. All right, so both of them are predestining the same thing. The difference comes in, when you take Coach Calvin and from the Calvinistic view of this goes, he says, I predestined what is gonna come of anybody who's a part of my team. But Coach Calvin goes, you're on my team, you're on my team, you should try soccer or something else. You're on my team, you're on my team, you're on my team, let's go. Whereas Coach Arminian goes, anybody who wants to be on my team, I've predetermined what's gonna be a part of our team. Anybody who wants to come and be a part of my team, they can be on my team. See, that's, that's, that's where we would draw the lines and kind of differentiate between those two views. So when you hear predestined, please don't think that's just God going, you, not you, not you, not you, not you. As much as God saying, if you choose to put your faith in Christ, I am predestining, I've already determined, I've already figured out what will be of your life. So what has he predestined us to? He predestined us. I love this. And we're gonna spend the most of our time today talking about these 
uh, that, this one word. He's predestined us for adoption. 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 He's predestined us for adoption. Now, before I talk about its implications for us in 2022, I want again to remind ourselves that when we come to God's word, we've got to get it in its original context because the truth is what the church in Ephesus would have heard when Paul said he's predestined you to adoption is much more different than what we hear when we think about adoption. Because when we think about adoption, we think about people going to, to, to China or Russia or Uganda or somewhere and getting a, you know, a baby out of an orphanage. But that is so far from what the people in Ephesus would have thought about when they heard the word adoption. So I wanna walk you through the context because Paul in the point I believe he's actually trying to make doesn't necessarily fit fully with our context of adoption. It fits in with the Roman Ephesians context of what adoption would have been. So let's talk about adoption in Ephesus. All right, if you're taking notes and you like to nerd out on this kind of stuff, lean in. All right, first of all, who was adopting people in Ephesus? So who was adopting people? First of all, it would have been unheard of for anyone who wasn't the upper class, like the upper crust, most wealthy people possible. And where Paul is writing, if you're not upper shelf, you're not adopting anybody. You take your kids and you run with them. They're your kids, you're not getting any more, okay? The only people who were adopting people were absolutely wealthy people. A lot of times it was people who already had titles, who were senators, who were governors, who, you know, are, are, were wealthy, sometimes even all the way up to the biggest title you could have, which was Caesar. So who was getting adopted? Again, this is where it's very different than our cultural context of adoption. No kids were getting adopted. We weren't adopting, we weren't going to get infants. We weren't going, you know, finding a woman who was already pregnant, but knew she couldn't, you know, keep the baby and she knew she wanted to put the baby up for adoption. That was not happening. The only people who got adopted were most of the time, even kids or or, or young adults from wealthy families that were all kind of hanging out at the same yacht club that the other rich people were hanging out at and going, hey, I don't have any heirs or people to carry on my family lineage. You have an extra son to spare. Can I have him? So the people even who were getting adopted was almost always males It was almost always males from esteemed wealthy families already. No kids, definitely no common folks. No people from Ola or Jackson, we were definitely not getting adopted, okay? So that's who is adopting, that's who is getting adopted. And again, I've already hinted at this a little bit, why they were getting adopted. It had nothing to do with them sitting around their you know, dinner table at night and just looking around and seeing an empty chair and be like, we just got, we got more love to give. <laughs> like, that is not why anybody was adopting them. They were adopting them because they said, I have so much wealth. I have so much of an estate. I have this amazing title and I don't want when I die it to just end. It was like the vanity of knowing that, hey, well, at least for one more generation, all of what I've built, all of what I work for, it will carry on to at least one more generation. And so in an effort to just, I don't know, in my, my mind, propagate vanity, they would say, well, let's get another heir. And oftentimes, again, uh, childbirth and everything was just as difficult or probably more difficult then than it even is now. And so there are a lot of people who would have all this giant estate, have the money, have the title and all of those things, but did not have a son to carry on that lineage. And so those were the people, and that was the reason they would go out and adopt. Now, how did that happen? This is fascinating. I learned this this week. So if you wanted to adopt a kid, what you would do is you would find somebody who is willing. All right, so say I'm the one who's willing to put my kid up for adoption. 
What I would do is this person over here who needed a kid, who needed somebody to carry on their family estate, their lineage, their heritage, all of their stuff. I would take my kid to them and I would sell that kid into adoption and then immediately buy them back. Because the Romans, they did everything with this process and you know, it was this big organization and it was this big ordeal. I would immediately buy my kid back. All right, so now he's my kid again, round one. And then I would take him back and I would sell him into adoption and then I would immediately buy him back. All right, my kid again. This is weird, right? But this is how they did it, it's crazy. And then round three, all right? Round three, I would sell him and then everybody knew after round three, this kid was officially yours, all right? And that's how it happened. Now, what's crazy is, and then again, this is in the context of everybody there in Ephesus who's hearing Paul say, God in love has predestined you for adoption as sons. Not God needed an extra mouth to feed. It's going, well, God, this God has everything. So again, let's put, it, let's put it in their context. So they're hearing this and going, wow. So our God did that for us? Like the only people I've ever heard of getting adopted are people that had like a reason to get adopted. Like somebody would actually want them. So you're telling me that there's this God out here who would want somebody like me? And it's blowing their minds as Paul says this. He's going, wow, somebody, somebody would adopt a regular ordinary person like me. And you're telling me that this God, even before I was born, even before the foundation of the earth, he chose me to be adopted. This is mind boggling to them. And on top of that, again, sticking with their context, once this kid went from his former father to his new father, he was now out of every responsibility to this father. He didn't have to listen to this dad anymore. This dad couldn't, you know, kind of send him a text message, say, hey, will you please remember to take the trash out? He'd just say, you're not my real dad anymore. You know, he'd just move on. But when he became a part of this new family, he was in line for every right, privilege, all of the things. He had full refrigerator rights. He could do whatever he wanted in this family, but he also had to do whatever that father said he needed to do. And so these people are hearing this and going, this heavenly father, this savior has made a way for me to be adopted. And now I have access to everything that's made available in Christ. So go back to verse three. Now they're beginning to allow the points to start firing together. So when Paul said, in Christ, you have every spiritual blessing is made available to you. And then he says, you're adopted. They're going, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's kind of like how, you know, if I became the new Caesar, I get everything. Well, this is kind of what it is, but it's not Caesar, it's God. And so I'm in line now to receive everything that God could possibly ever give me. And again, their mind is blowing here. And this is what's made available to us as well. See, when, when we get adopted, we get invited into this new family. And again, when God adopts you, <laughs> think about adoption, whether it's this, you know, the Romans form or even um, stateside adoption or international adoption today, none of the kids who were getting adopted were sitting around going, okay, let me work out my adoption. It was all of the parents' volition. It was all of even the wealthy estate owners' volition. Like it was all their big part in their plan. And so for where we sit, we got to understand that it's all like God is moving and working. He's doing all of this, but we cannot just let it be about what we're adopted into because usually that's where we leave it to say, you got a great inheritance. You have amazing things coming for you. And that's awesome. And you totally do because of what, you know, the, the God that he is. But what I need you to understand, and hopefully the church in Ephesus begin to put two and two together is track with me here. I need you to lean in. Don't miss this. Satan wants you to miss it. Please don't miss this. It's not just a, what you are adopted 
to. It's what you're adopted out of. Okay? So I think the wheels were started turning for the church in Ephesus, hopefully as they're starting to turn for you. Because they're going, okay, up until this point, when it came to God's, None of us were sitting around going, well, that God could ever be my father. Nobody was ever thinking that. They're just like, you're a God, I'm a creature, I'm a creation. That's why they were carrying around little silver, silver figurines of Artemis in their pocket because that was just the God who, if I had a bad horoscope that month, I could go talk to that God or go talk to the witch doctor or whatever and he would try to get me out of those things. Nobody had this concept of a God as a father and you as a child. And so they're starting to put two and two together like we hopefully are of going, okay, hmm, if I have a new father, what that means is I used to have a former father. And I get in the Roman context that that's a biological father who you leave and then you get a new father. But we're not just talking about blood stuff here. We're talking about from the spiritual side. And so I believe in the the mind of the church in Ephesus, they're going, okay, well, if God is my new spiritual father, my for real father, well, then who was my other spiritual former father? Whose kid was I then before I came into a relationship with this father? Whose child was I then? And Paul, he knew they were gonna ask that question and he answers that question for them. Fast forward to Ephesians chapter two. Go all the way down, skip through this. Paul tells them whose kid they were. Ephesians 2, 1. He says, in you, it's everybody before they were in Christ, in you, this is what you were. You were dead in the trespasses and sins. You're dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. He's saying, you are following Satan. That's when you see prince of the power of the air, you see Satan and his dark evil forces. You were following him. You were taking your orders from him. You were taking your, your commands from him. You did what he told you to do. It says the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So he's the prince of the power uh, of the air. He's the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So when he's talking about the sons of disobedience, he's saying that's who we were. You were the sons and the daughters of disobedience because we followed the prince of the power of darkness in this world. So you did have a former father. To make it explicitly clear, he then goes, among whom we all once lived. So those people who are hearing this going, but I had perfect attendance at school and you know, I've never really you know, gone to that temple or I've not done that thing. He's going, Mm-mm, all, you all were sons of disobedience. You all were daughters of disobedience. You all were following the instructions of the prince of the powers of the air. That was all of you. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature, here's our word, children of wrath. He says, you had a father. He's a really bad one. He's the worst possible father you could ever have. He was Satan. That's your old father. That's your former father. Now, when you hear that, that for us has got to begin to be something that changes everything because it's not just what I'm adopted to, it's what I'm adopted out of. Knowing that that I had this former father who because of my life in him that was not yet in Christ, I was a child of wrath. That meant the wrath of God that was due Satan was also due me because I was part of his inheritance, his bloodline through the sin that had befalled me from very beginning with Adam and Eve there in the garden. I was a child of wrath. 
And that was what was supposed to come my way. Now, what's wild is in adoption, and this is where, again, hopefully this clicks with you the same way I hope it clicked for the church in Ephesus. If that's from the spiritual sense, and Paul's using this in the natural sense, what that means is in the same way that if I'm adopted out of this father, he no longer has authority in me. He can say whatever he wants. And I can say, you're not my real dad. I don't have to listen to you. And so the church in Ephesus, hopefully they're doing the same thing that we're beginning to do now to realize that I don't have to listen to that father anymore. His voice no longer has reign and rule in my life. So when Satan comes up to me and in the midst of what's going on in my life, he says, hey, you need to stay up more at night and worry and fix this problem for yourself because God is not helping you out of this. You have to do this on your own. We can look at him and say, you're not my real dad. I don't have to listen to you. I don't have to obey you. When he says, hey, you need, you need to do this. You're not, gonna feel, you're, not, you're gonna be worried and anxious until you finish. You're not gonna be able to get this off your mind. When he says, hey, nobody's gonna find out. Just check that box on that form. Hey, tell that secret that they told you not to tell. Call it a prayer request. When he, when he lures us into those temptations, what we now have the opportunity and the right and privilege to do is to say the very same thing an adopted young man in Rome would have said and to look back at his father, look him in the eyes and go, you're not my father anymore. You're not my dad. I don't have to listen to you anymore. I don't, you don't have rule, reign or control over my life. I have a new father, which we just lean here for a second. To the fellows in the room, which we have men's Bible study, 6.30 Tuesday. I'd love for you to be there. Men's Bible study, 6.30 Tuesday. We're actually going to have breakfast. So free food, Tuesday, 6.30. Shameless plug. Be there, guys. Um, Yes. Jesus chicken. Um, So let me talk to the guys in the room for a second. And not to say that women don't struggle in this area, but I I want you to see this in the right way. Take something, for instance, uh, like, like pornography. When you feel that temptation, you can think, this is just my anatomy. This is just my urges. This is just my hormones. I'm just wired like this. I have a sex drive. This is just what's going on inside of me right now. And listen, that is actually true. And there are things that we can do to help navigate some of that. But that is not the main problem. And that's not the root what I want you to hear when temptation comes, whether it be to that or to anything else, is not satisfy this urge. When you feel that temptation, what I want you to hear is your former father saying, please come back to me. Please come back. I promise I've changed. You remember how good it was? Do you remember how good it felt? It was, it, it, you felt good, right? It's good. You remember how, you, you remember what it was like? Remember how much fun we've had? And like this, this abusive, manipulative, symbiotic relationship, every temptation that he sends our way is not do this, cuss them out, cut that off, do those things. It's all him saying, come back. Come on back. With hopes that you'll forget how bad it really was. And for a few seconds allow the temporary pleasure to outweigh the pain that he knows he's gonna get you to endure 
if you do come back to him and you do start letting him have authority in your life. Now, we've talked about what we're adopted into. That's an amazing thing. Hopefully you're beginning to see what you're adopted out of. Now, Satan has no rule and reign on your life anymore. Now, I want you to also be able to see and understand how in the world this happened, that you made it out of this sin orphanage, that you made it out of him being your father, that you no longer can be identified as a child of wrath. How in the world did this happen? Paul tells us. Here's what we can tell Satan. Let's say this together, actually, before we get into that. All right, here we go. Here's what you can tell Satan next time. You just you know, write this down, mumble it on your breath, shout it from the top of your lungs, whatever you need to do. Next time you feel temptation, instead of just going, oh, let me fight this. Oh, let me, you know, let me turn on Christian radio and hope my song is on. Like, how about this? Next time you feel temptation, you can't tell me what to do because I don't belong to you. Get, get, man, like, just be a, <laughs> man, sometimes you just gotta get aggressive, okay? Like, I know Jesus was meek and mild and he pet lambs and everything else, but, but like he was also aggressive, guys. Like, and sometimes it's okay to get aggressive, like especially with Satan. He, Jesus has no problem with you like being aggressive. Like, I don't belong to you. Get out. I don't belong to you. You don't know me. So let's say this together. You ready? One, two, and a three. You can't tell me what to do because I don't belong to you. That feels good, doesn't it? Next time you, you say that, I pray you say it with some, some swagger and some bass in your voice. You know, I don't know where you're going to be. You know, please don't say it after your boss tells you something to do because he ain't going to know that you're talking to Satan and not him. Um, just make sure you're in the right place to say that out loud if you're going to say it out loud. That's all I'm saying. All right. So how, how does this adoption out of what we were in into what we can now be in in Christ, how does that happen? He says he's predestined us for adoption to himself as sons, here's our words, through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus. Because you're not just here in the middle in this tug of war, like this battle for custody between Satan and your new father. You're not there. Something had to happen. Something big and drastic had to happen for you to go with your former father to you being here. And in the same way with the Roman adoption, this is what they're thinking in their minds. Okay, in order for somebody to be adopted, what do they have to be? bought. They had to be purchased. In the same way that they had to be purchased three times to make it official, our God sends his son to earth to go to a cross instead of three times being purchased, three times being in the grave so that you can be risen up now having your life paid for, your punishment paid for so that you can be a part of this new family. And it does not happen without you being in Christ and receiving the payment that he did when he rose from the grave on the third day and it became official. And so if, if I had to explain this word through, what in the world are we talking about there? Here, here's how I would say it. And I, I had to write this out because I didn't want to mess this up. Okay, so Jesus makes adoption possible, not you. He makes it possible and there's no way it can happen without him. He is the holy and blameless one. Remember, he said, you chose you from the beginning of time so you could be what? Holy and blameless, all right? So he is the only one who is holy and blameless. And listen to this, every word in here is on purpose. We cannot become holy and blameless unless we take his holiness and blamelessness as our own. Let's just stop right there, okay? 
There's no way you can be holy and blameless unless you take it from him because you can't make it on your own. Tracking? All right, you have to have that. But what doesn't work is just that one-sided equation of going, okay, I have a lot to blame for myself and I am definitely not holy. Jesus, just give me yours and I'm gonna put it on over mine. Doesn't work like that. Had to go both ways. We take his holiness and blamelessness as our own. And here's the other part. And he takes our unholiness and blameworthiness as his own. There's a big theological term here that many people just, we don't ever get into this kind of stuff, but this term is, is double impartation. And what this means essentially is Jesus takes all of your unrighteousness, all of your blameworthiness, all of your unholiness on him. And in trade, you then get all of his holiness, all of his unblame, all of his grace, all of his mercy. You get all of that. He gets all of what you deserved. You get all of what he deserved. And that friends is what's so amazing about grace. That it was both ways. That it's, that it's double me becoming a part of him and him becoming part of me. And that's what happens. And that's what made it possible for us to be adopted in to this family, to be brought in as children of God and no longer children of wrath. And so today, I wanna end by hopefully being able to like in my mind, best that I can show you or explain this idea of what I feel like happened here. Because I've had some friends and, and people who are at this church and people that Jessica and I have been close friends with who have adopted children. And when you adopt a kid, <clears throat> like the, the couple that I know that we're really close with, the Burgess family, um, we, were, we got to be, when I was a pastor in North Carolina, a really big part, I think, uh, uh, along with God in, in helping them adopt the child that they did. We did some service projects. We rallied people to give financially. And this family ended up adopting a beautiful little girl named Rosabelle. And as they were going through that process, they went through some really hard times of, of thinking that they were going to be the family who was going to get a kid. And then they weren't, then they didn't work out. And anybody who's been through the adoption process, you know, it can, it can be really taxing on your heart because you get your hopes up and then you get let down. And this particular family... <clears throat> They got to the place where they're getting ready to, to adopt this child and they adopted her. And I, I still, one of my favorite moments ever as a pastor was, was them in our living room, the moment like, and our small group had been praying for them for a long time, which again, this is what small groups are all about. Is like, <laughs> if you were to ask yourself right now in this moment, if I was going to adopt, who would help me? And if you're in this room and you feel like God may be leading you to adoption and you didn't know who would help you, this is the reason you need to be in a small group because those are the people who do. They help, the, they help the, the ends get met. They help the prayers get prayed. This is where it happens. And then we're in our group and little Rosabelle is sitting in, you know, Brad and Paige's arms and we're, we're all just laying hands. There's not a, a dry or a nose with no boogers in it. Just, I mean, just all prayers for this baby girl. But you know what I know would have kept her out of my living room? If the people that were the ones who were giving her up for adoption had said, yeah, we'll give her to you, but we need Graham. Graham was their nine-year-old boy, biological. See, we, we know a lot of people who adopt kids, but I have not met anybody who's willing to leave a biological kid at the orphanage 
to bring home an orphan. See, what our father does is he looked down at this hellacious orphanage that is called planet earth post garden. Looked at this terrible garden where people backstab, where people molest, rape, where millions of babies are aborted, where people have no idea what is truth, where people lie and manipulate and steal, where people pretend to be things that they're not to get things that they don't need. He looks down at this this terrible orphanage and this orphanage is, is led by this headmaster named Satan. And he entices the kids to wrath. He entices the kids to backstab. He loves it when there is chaos in his orphanage. It is what he feels like it was created for because he hates every kid here and loves pretending like he loves them. And the father, he knows this orphanage exists. And he has a perfect son who he loves, who is before him. And this father... And the son, they have a plan. And this plan involves father and son becoming part of this orphanage. It involves a son not just walking through the orphanage and looking through the picture books and figuring out which ones I want to take home with me. The son goes to the orphanage under decree of his father to say, I want the whole orphanage all of them. I want you to make a way for all of them to come. And this son enters into this orphanage and he is hated. All the kids, they see the adoration and the attention he's getting. He gets a few to follow him, but most of them don't understand him. He's misunderstood. He's backstabbed. While he's there, the headmaster of the orphanage does everything he can to get him to stumble and fall, to get him to crumble, to get him to, uh, instead of saying, I am the king's kid, does everything he can, even when he's at his weakest, to get him to deny that and to say that he is in fact his new father because he is in his house here in the orphanage. And eventually there's an uprising and the other orphanage kids they kill him and he's, he's dead. And he's thrown in the ground like so many orphans had been thrown in the ground before. And those were the best three days of the headmaster's life. He won. I didn't, I'm gonna eventually kill all these kids in the orphanage and I killed God's kid. He's so amped, did it, mission accomplished. And then three days later, it's paid in full. It's paid in full. And he doesn't, he doesn't shoot up out of the ground that all of them were buried in and just throw tables over and shout it from trumpets. He goes to a few who he knew kind of looked at him curiously. And he says, hey, I'm alive very rebellious, 
undercurrent way. I'm about to start an uprising here in this orphanage. And anybody who wants to be free, they can be free. Now it's gonna cost them, it's gonna cost them all of this old life, but they will have freedom in me, and I will let every I will I am making a way for anybody who wants out of this place to come out of this place. And the news begins to spread, and it spreads and it spreads and it spreads. He eventually leaves the orphanage, and there's we're here left with this message that there is a way out. And some of, some of us in this room, we have accepted that invitation out of the orphanage that is hell on earth as children of wrath. And we accepted that invitation out and through the blood of Christ, we are in Christ. And now we have invitation into this new life and this new family with a new father. And the old headmaster of the orphanage that is hell on earth, he has no rule and no reign in our life. But unfortunately, many times, we remember some of those good moments in the orphanage. We remember some of those moments where we pushed down enough people to be on top. We remember some of those moments where even in our sin, we looked down the line and saw someone who was a little more sinful and felt okay about ourselves. We remember the, the, the blissfulness of the pleasure that the orphanage could bring. We remember the taste on our lips. We remember its numbing effects. We remember the salve and how it brought us healing. We remember the pleasure that the intercourse, we remember the things that made this place just pleasurable enough to keep going back. And sometimes over here when it gets hard and we don't like discipline and we don't want um, somebody to tell us what to do and we um, would rather have a shortcut to the pleasure that this, this father now says really is ours in Christ. We, we, and again, we do it like this so nobody really sees us leaving. We can wander back. And today, my hope and my plea is that, that you would kiss the orphanage and your place in it, goodbye. And you would embrace, here's what you need to do. You've got to embrace that your role is not to just camp out in the Father's house. That our role is to infiltrate to the best that we can with all of that Father's resources, this crazy sin-scarred orphanage so that we're not gonna go play it safe over here. We're gonna be the people who try to do our best to sneak in across enemy lines so that we can be used by Christ, the one who rescued us out to rescue as many people as possible. That's the mission of the local church. And that's why the local church exists in the orphanage. He hasn't came and taken us home yet, guys. We're still here. There's a purpose for us. There's a reason for us. And I just felt led and compelled to say to you guys, look, if, if our father, when he chooses to say the, the thing that is most glorious and amazing about him and what's so beautiful about his choosing is that he chooses us for adoption. If, and when he thinks about how do I describe to them what I've done for them, he calls it adoption. Then goodness gracious, there should be no other thing on planet earth that cares for orphan kids and cares for vulnerable kids more than the local church does. And I look at what, what I'm doing as your pastor and I go, man, we're not doing, I don't enough, any, I, I have a hard time going anything because I think there's maybe something happening, but goodness gracious, I feel compelled that, that we're gonna pray a big prayer in a second. I have no idea where it's gonna take us, but we're gonna pray a big prayer. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we would be open to whatever God would do in and through us for orphaned kids and kids who are in harm's way. 
And I'm gonna invite you to pray that prayer. And so what that means is some people in this room who are listening to the sound of my voice and are watching online, some of you are gonna adopt a kid in the next two or three years because you prayed this prayer. Now don't elbow your husband, don't whisper it to anybody, don't pray this prayer, I don't want to be on the hook. Do not do that. But, but I'm, I'm over, I'm so over. Come to church, sing a song, go through the rhythm, give God a weekend, and then just go back to living life how I want to. We, we've, we've got to come to these crossroads in our life where even the big things of life, whether it's parenting, whether it's our finances, whether it's our we come to these crossroads with the big things in our life and we just go, God, I'm open to whatever you want me to do. I'm, I'm open. I'm not going to go and, and, and sit in a place for an hour on Sunday and then leave and go, my will, it's your will, it, without, with all of it. I'm gonna invite you to pray this. This is our big application. It's, it's a big open-ended, who knows what could happen. I'm gonna to talk to God for a second. We're gonna to talk to God for a second. And then I'm gonna invite you to, to, to repeat this simple prayer after me. It goes like this. We'll repeat it in a second. I just want you to know what it's gonna be. I will do whatever you call me to do to care for the orphans and vulnerable children. I will do whatever you call me to do to care for orphans and vulnerable children. We're gonna pray that one time for you as an individual. And then we're gonna change the wording and we're gonna pray back. We will do whatever you call us to do to care for orphans and vulnerable children. All right, let's enter into a time of prayer. You talk to God in your heart, speak to him now. Father God, I thank you that you adopted me. A kid who knows what it's like to feel fatherless. Feels fatherless on a weekly basis. Forgive me for, for feeling that and, and just, just leading a church that didn't do everything possible to make sure nobody else feels that. <sighs> Jesus, we're getting ready to pray. A big prayer that's gonna take a lot of surrender on our hearts. I believe you wanna do something amazing in and through your local church here. We're not here by accident. So Jesus, I ask you to help us take what we're about to pray seriously. Let's pray together. I will do whatever you call me to do to care for orphans and vulnerable children. Now as a family, we will do whatever you call us to do to care for orphans and vulnerable children. In Jesus' name, amen.
You're getting ready to sing a song. It talks about how deep the Father's love for us. It says, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that he would give his only son to make a wretch like me and like you, his treasure. And I'm gonna invite us to take communion as an us today. A lot of times we, we, we give it to you, you got it, you take it, you talk to God. I gave you a little bit of time to do that already today. But what I wanna do now is, is lean back into the us and let us gotta go back a little more of an old school route and t- put, the, put the bread in our mouth at the same time, put the juice in our mouth at the same time and pray to our father at the same time and then sing to him knowing that he has not just made me his treasure, that he has made us his treasure. Go ahead and remove this uh, cellophane. Pull out the representation of his body. It was broken for us. And I invite you now to take this body that he broke and said was done for the forgiveness of all mankind. Taste and see the Lord is good. Jesus, thank you for what was done in your body so that this church could be the body of Christ, unified together with arms outstretched to the last, the lost, and the least in our city, in our building. And now I invite you to take the cup. The juice represents his blood poured out. with the forgiveness of all mankind to give us a new DNA where red is the only color that matters anymore for me and for you. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Jesus, thank you for washing us clean and setting us free by the power of your blood. We rest in you today as adopted children, home, with you as our authority, with you as our king. Our old former father has no say in our lives. We don't wanna go back there. We will never go back there by your strength and your name.